Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, The podcast is called Finding Genius because I'm not looking for the regular practitioners in in a given field. I'm looking for the the special people that have gone above and beyond and have really, um, you know, become top of their field. I think my guest today fits right in, uh, Dr. Richard Allen White III. Uh, his name abbreviates to RAW, which is pretty cool. Uh, he's the founder of RAW Molecular Systems, LLC. Rich, thanks for coming. How are you doing? You know, it is my honor to be here today, and thank you for the brilliant introduction. Uh, so let me explain who I am. So I, uh, I sure. am uh, Dr. Richard Allen White III. I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology uh, from the University of Columbia, Vancouver. Uh, I did my master's degree at Cal State East Bay, formerly Hayward working on HIV, GBC, now human virus, uh, human pegivirus G uh, co-infection, and got my bachelor's of science in cell and molecular biology also at Cal State East Bay in Hayward. So I've been working on viruses in all domains of life, viruses that infect people, animals, plants, fungi, and bacteria. Um, I've dedicated my life to this, and my fascination for viruses Started, you know, literally when I was a child, look, watched the movie, The Hot, The Outbreak, trending now on Netflix. And eventually I took a course in, in cell and molecular biology. The final course was talking about the unfilterable agents, and these were viruses. And my love affair has grown more and more over the decade. Yeah, well, it's especially relevant, unfortunately, because of uh, COVID-19. So uh, it's good that we're talking today. Um, so you're working with phage therapy, your raw company, uh, they focus on phage therapy. Uh, so people that have what, bacterial infection, you're looking for natural predators of these bacteria that would counteract them. Is that, is that how you'd express it? So uh, before I answer that question, I want to answer your other question about uh, viruses that infect viruses. So uh, these things are called virophage. And there is a classical example from my old lab in the University of British Columbia, Matthias Fisher's work, working on a virus that infects flagellates called Crow-V. He found it completely by mistake uh, in a gel electrophoresis of a 14 kb band, and he found this thing called Marvara. It's a brilliant paper in science, and basically this virus hijacks giant virus using the same sequences that the giant virus uses to replicate its nucleic acids and even integrates inside the host chromosome. And actually, further sequencing data has shown this to be true. And it's kind of like an ancient immune system prior to adaptive or, or innate immunity. So if you're in, so viruses can get sick. And so I'll answer that question first. Uh, I'm sure so, people, uh, people, people will be happy to hear that because they probably don't have any, any sympathy for them and think they're evil. You know? Well, uh, most of the viruses, probably 99% of them will never infect you. Actually, they're, they're our first line of defense. When I was a postdoc, at uh, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I worked on the uh, Integrated Human Microbiome Project, and we find uh, 
you know, correlations with phage being uh, found in healthy people that are not found in uh, Crohn's disease as well. There was a paper just published about uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And if you had a presence of a phage, a bacterial virus that infects trichococcus, you're actually protected. So uh, getting back to raw. So I started raw uh, about uh, right, uh, at the eight year anniversary of my mother's passing. So my mother died. Uh, initially, she got a flesh eating bacterium, uh, a streptococcus, and it literally uh, wiped her. Basically, she went from a small sore to almost take to full sepsis in a matter of hours. She then uh, got vancomycin resistant uh, enterococcus, and then six months later, she was gone. So my general thing and why I started Raw on the year anniversary back in 2017 is that uh, I want to actually get the science to, and I, it, it, we're in a constant different struggle with what's going on right now in government. But in general, we need to basically push the science from the basic to the applied and getting it to farmers, getting it to people, getting it to uh, hospitals and getting it to farm, farming operations and stuff like that. Um, and so phage therapy, as you mentioned, is not a, is not a, is not a, um, it's, it's an, it's an old dog. We're teaching an old dog to do new tricks. We've known about it for a hundred years. The day that penicillin is published, there is a huge op-ed between Luria and Fleming talking about how this is going to cause a problem. And within four years, we had antibiotic resistance, antibiotic resistance. I know we're dealing with COVID right now. And the WHO has predicted 10 million people a year will die. Uh, by 2050, and it will outpace cancer. Around 700,000 people a year die for antibiotic resistance. As, uh, as a virologist, I, go ahead. I, I, have a, yeah, I have a question here about virus or phage and bacteria dynamics, for instance. So why, I, I'm guessing, you know, a small molecule drug we develop, bacteria develop resistance to it, and a phage, I mean, I guess you could say it's a, you know, I would say it's a living thing that adapts as the bacteria adapts, so then it's a... Uh, an ongoing arms race. So maybe that's why there's not so much phage resistance. Is that in any way accurate? So I think this is, I, I, I want to say, first of all, commend you by saying that viruses are alive. So, uh, and when you look at obligated intercellular parasites, um, you know, when you, and you look at parasites in general, without the host, for example, in malaria, if you don't have the mosquito and you don't have the mammal host, you don't have this, right? Um, so viruses really are living. I think it's the greatest way to define it. We've just, we've been defining them wrong. So that's the first part of that. And so the second part of that, that is a very intriguing part. And yes, you do get phage resistant uh, rapidly. If you have one, uh, and Paul Turner's work out of Yale, working at Pseudomonas, and so Pseudomonas is this organism that causes uh, devastating uh, disease in CF patients. It basically makes a biofilm and it's polymicrobial infection. It's very, because of a small point mutant in their genome. Uh, they call it kind of buildup of mute, mute, mute. So Paul Turner uh, basically isolated the phage uh, from a from a river and actually showed that Pseudomonas could actually gain. Um, uh, the Pseudomonas is naturally resistant uh, to antibiotics because it can basically just pump the antibiotics. Out. So the phage uses a pump to actually get in. And so when you use this phage therapy, uh, which Paul has now turned it into a company, uh, you can actually make antibiotics useful. So again, you can, you know, because the, the bacteria can only uh, uh, basically mutate to have one or the other. So you can take these old drugs that we thought were, you combine them with phage and actually make them more effective. And uh, I definitely recommend uh, peak at Paul's. So, so what are you doing? You're taking an old drug. Are you like uh, adhering 
a, 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 an entry device that goes through the pump or is it, or is it that you're just giving them phage therapy and drug and the phages are allowing entry for the drug? So what I'm saying is that um, the, the, in the case of Paul's work, this is not what I'm doing. In the case of Paul's work, the bacteria loses this pump. And so when it loses this pump, you can give it an, in, in basically it, it's an evolutionary strategy. So you, you add the phage to the bacteria and then it loses, it basically says, I don't want this phage anymore. And so it removes the pump. And so then when you oh, give I it, see, I see. so then when you give it the, so, and then when you give it the drug, it's now susceptible to a drug now. And so this is one therapy. What we're trying to do is we're trying, we're going after um, raw molecular systems, LLC, NAT, which will soon be Inc. We're going after two devastating, um, devastating agricultural disease because that's where our heart is right now. We will eventually branch off to look at humans and animals and a collaboration group trying to go after and help uh, a bacterial bees. So, uh, you know, in our case, we're working after this thing called fire blight. It's a devastating disease, pear, an apple, bacterial disease. It's related to E. coli. Um, they're in the same family. And phage is about, is really the only way, because they're foliar pathogens, the bacteria gets in through the through the surface of the plant and then can come and infect and it causes devastating disease. And the reason it started this is when I was working again at uh, PNNL, uh, the farmers were talking to me about how this is a problem and literally goes into an acre and wipes out acres and causes almost like a fire. Um, so oh, oh. Our, our, current, um, our current phage, uh, our current phage and we use a cocktail, so it's a blend of phages. So the bacteria can't evolve around you know, multiple different phages at multiple different times. So that's our one product. This is our Accelophage product, which is basically using AI to actually predict bacterial weak points and actually be able to give us a front door to actually go in and uh, destroy this bacterial disease. We uh, have invented a whole new field in uh, microviral therapies, going after another devastating pathogen, of course, being in the Pacific Northwest, more on the Idaho side, and a lot of uh, potatoes are grown in Oregon and Washington. Uh, there's this thing called verticillium. It's a devastating fungal pathogen, and it can really hurt your, your daily French fry amount. Developing a microvirus, so a virus that only infects them, uh, and then use that as well as a cocktail to eliminate this fungal disease. Okay, so a couple of questions here. So it sounds like your strategy is to attack a given bacteria with multiple phages so that it can't adapt to both of them at the same time. And, and so it's a war on two fronts and gets killed. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Uh, our, mic, our, our product against verticillium is MycoClear. And uh, what we're, we use an AI-based synthetic bot. We use AI-based to calculate weak points and how to get into the, into the bacteria for our Accelopage product. And the same thing with our fungal-based product. And, uh, we're, you know, obviously they're different. It's infecting dealing with bacteria and the other one with fungi. Uh, but we're using AI, we can outthink and out-evolve because the benefit of phage is that we have, and mycovirus, is we have strength in number. On average, 10, uh, 10 billion, 100 billion uh, novel unique viruses. And so that's the other thing that people think about is that you, when you're infected, you're not infected with a single virus. You know, when we sequence a genome, even for this COVID-19, we are getting infected by a population. Uh, Richard Harrigan's work, out of um, the Center of Excellence for HIV is that almost all the protease inhibitors for HIV were present within that single patient. It's just an ecological dynamic where one viral strain is dominant within that pop, And that's what's basically what we call kill the winner in viral ecology. So we, we, the benefit of viruses is that basically nature has provided our Excalibur, our way to defeat uh, 
bacterial and fungal disease, as well as maybe even viral disease. Are you, are you looking for existing phages or are you trying to make your own by altering an existing virus slightly so that it, uh, you know, it, it, it forces, um, you know, multiple uh, defenses from the bacteria? I think that's a wonderful question. And so we, uh, so, and I'll give you an example from chemical libraries back in the 80s and the 70s. So back in the 80s and the 70s and maybe even the late, early 90s is they built thousands of these chemical libraries from chemistry. And then they tested them on, on, you know, big pharma and drug companies. And they got basically very little results. And the reason for that is that biology had never seen it. And so the thing now in drugs is that you go to natural product life and you use that as the backbone of your therapy. And once, the th once that backbone has been published, you can design and go from there with small molecules. And so we envision uh, uh, raw molecular systems and a lot of uh, uh, viral-based companies that are popping out, especially in the human sector, we envision that wave of new therapeutics will be through synthetic bio and that we can do that with phage because, and phage have been used for a variety of different techniques, uh, next-gen sequencing, uh, phage display, you name it. And so we, it, we start from nature. So we know that this virus can infect this organism. And then we're able to look at the population, the naturally occurring population, and actually predict with AI which, which mutations would arise and then which members in those populations would be most suited to eradicate them. So what happens when a bacteria or a person or whatever is under attack by a certain virus population? How does the bacteria choose which flavors of the virus to stop and adapt against? I mean, the viruses, it sounds like you're competing to, you know, for the prey, but how does the bacteria like fend off all these assaults? This is, this is a great thing. So uh, the dynamic here you're discussing is an ecology and it's also called the red queen. And so it's this idea that the phage and the host have to evolve at the same rate, otherwise they cease. So what's interesting here is that, um, you know, we hear a lot about CRISPR floating around. And so CRISPR actually evolved out of, out of bacteria trying to defend their ways away from phages. Someone then manipulated that uh, donut and then uh, a thing out of MIT as a way to edit DNA genomes, because what it does, it cleaves uh, nucleic acid. And so you could use that to edit genomes. And so what the, what the bacteria does is it cleaves a bit of the viral DNA and then loads it so it recognizes that viral DNA again. However, with the, there's also, the viruses are also fighting as well. There's an anti-CRISPR um, thing that a virus can use to inhibit CRISPR. So there's this constant war between viruses and hosts. And even, you know, bacteria and, and fungi and hosts kind of arms race. And so whoever gets, whoever designed a, a, a natural selection and evolution then allows for these novel things to occur. That's crazy. So a bacteria, okay, so a virus works its way into a bacteria and I guess there's a, is there a struggle internally? The bacteria is trying to clip it and take a piece of it and use that for defense against future that's, viruses? Or is that, or is that bacteria correct. doomed? It, I mean, some what, of those bacteria it, are doomed. Some of them then uh, are lysed and released small molecules called quorum sensing molecules to let their buddies know. Actually, in the case of this one vibriophage, it actually won't infect the host until this quorum sensing molecule is present. Um, so, you know, there's this constant dynamic, as I mentioned, and I, I guess I wanted to mention something that we didn't really get into. And that is just, you know, you said, what, what are surprising insights about this? So I want to get at the numbers here we're talking about. So, uh, viruses, we've assumed the counts from viruses by basically taking a drop of water and staining it with nucleic acid stains. And this, we believe there's 10 to the 31 viruses globally. And that is known as the Hendrix product. So how big a number is that? That is, that is such a big number that that is more 
than the atoms in a mole of an element. The Avogadro number number is 6.022 times 10 to the 20. So we're looking at right. a seven orders of magnitude. We're looking at eight orders of magnitude more just in the viral abundance that we've been able to. As well, that's more than the stars in the observable universe. How about versus the number of bacteria on Earth? What's that number? So we believe that in the number of bacteria is around 10 to the 30, but we're drastically underestimating the number of viruses because we assume there's around uh, around 10 billion to around uh, about 10 to the 9 per gram of soil, uh, 10 to the 9, 10 to the 11th in a gram of sediment. Uh, you have more viruses in your gut right now than there are stars in the Andromeda galaxy. Um, in the air, also not being uh, direct, not being counted, there's around 800 million viruses that are deposited per square meter on this planet. That's around 25 viruses that fall on you every day. 20% of the ocean's biomass is lysed every day from viral infections. And that we assume is around 10 to the 23rd viral infection occurs right now as we're talking. And again, we're vastly underestimating this. This is based on tailed phage. Uh, Most we've shown in the ocean are untailed. Uh, These nucleic acid stains cannot stain RNA. They have a hard time with single-stranded DNA. Uh, and a lot of the large viruses, the ones that I just talked about, like Pandora viruses, they're quite large. There's almost half the size or, or equivalent size of an E. coli around a micrometer. They're filtered out by most things like 0.45 filtering or 0.2. So there's giant viruses that are that have a genome that's almost this, that is about the size of a bacteria, 2.7 megabases, and it has 200 genes. Uh, just recently, out of Jill Banfield's group. They found brand new giant phages, one that's 735 KB. Uh, the Hill Group out of Ireland has identified 10, 1,000 brand new single-stranded RNA viruses through next-gen sequence. So we are in a, a, revo- a, a revolution of what is going on in the virus. So it sounds like viruses are, the, are a gigantic engine of turnover for, I guess, primordial life for, uh, for bacteria and archaea and and all that there, you know, especially in the oceans and in the soil. Is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm saying for sure in the ocean. We believe this to exist in soil. We, we are trying to go after the terrestrial viral shunt in, in soil and in sediments, but we believe there is turnover that is occurring in the soil, but it's much more panned out. And a lot of the carbon is actually stored through this thing called the viral shunt that's stored irreparably in the deep ocean. Uh, so viruses are the largest genetic reservoir of genes. And a virus has the strength in numbers, right? So it's just playing game theory on its hook. And if so if there's a gene that it, it's useful to actually uh, integrate and allow it to be more infectious or allow it to be better for them, it will use a perfect example of these things called viral metabolic accessory, where the virus steals like a piece of like a photosystem and gets rid of all the junk and actually cranks up primary productivity of like photosynthesis or blocks, uh, you know, uh, carbon fixation to order to make more nucleic acid. Uh, there's a lot of these things that we're just now discovering, uh, increasing comalamin C12 as well. So, uh, you know, this is absolutely phenomenal for the next age of synthetic biology because we're able to then use these genes to potentially engineer uh, gut microbiota in humans, gut microbiota in animals, where maybe they won't have as much methane, uh, you know, building, I've seen this thing as building a phage battery from using, you know, positive and negative capsid head. Uh, you know, this will be the next revolution that we will see in science that will provide potentially millions of uh, that will allow us, which I hope, to colonize beyond this planet. Hopefully the, uh, 
the tens of the 31 viruses who produce tens of the seven jobs. Just <laughs> bad joke. We can only hope. We can only hope. So uh, what do you think it looks like longitudinally? Let's say in my gut, you know, I have a certain bacteria and of course there's phages that are preying upon it and there's this battle back and forth, but yet I seem to, you know, keep uh, similar levels of a certain bacteria in my gut. I mean, why is that? Why is one not winning? Why is the bacteria not proliferating? And why is the virus not proliferating? What's keeping that in balance, you think? And longitudinally, so, what's happening to the, the RNA or DNA of the uh, bacteria and the virus themselves? How are they changing? Well, this is, this is some great questions. So I'll try to discontang- uh, 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 discontangle this. So there is one phage that is highly dominant in the gut. It's called the Cas phage, crossed assembly phage. And it affects a, a very, one of the most dominant uh, players in the gut, and it's uh, a Bacteroidetes. And so upwards of, you know, I think it was what, 50 to 70% of your gut phage ohm can be uh, of this virus. And so it keeps populations in checks. There has been some studies in uh, inflammatory bowel disease where, where you don't see a lot of lytic fire. And, you, when, and so viruses, especially the phage, um, they can switch between living freely and infecting. Uh, these are called lytic viruses. Um, and, or they can integrate, they can jump inside the host and integrate inside its DNA, or they can exist as bits of nucleic acids or plasmid elements that are in the host. And they just replicate with the host. At the end of the day, the virus is a selfish, obligate intercellular parasite. All it wants to do is replicate its nucleic acid. That's its main drive. And so we find that some of these ones that are inside the bacteria, a uh, perfect example, again, is from Pseudomonas, this PF phage, where it infects the Pseudomonas, and then it makes, it, when it has the phage element, it actually is harder to treat a wound. And so the wound doesn't heal. So phage can be good, you know, killing pathogens, but they're a double-edged sword. Is that they can also increase the virulence of known bacterial pathogens. Vibrio perihemolyticus is a perfect, where the phage is the thing that makes it, makes it or Shigella toxin, it jumps into Shigella. So phage can, you know, they give it and it takes away. So it's a double-edged sword. You could have some that, you know, if they jump into the host and they carry genes that make the, the bacteria adhere to a surface better, uh, that's a virulence factor. Uh, and there's some that go in and kill. And so we need to look at both sides of the... That's really interesting. So if I have, again, a given phage and a given bacteria, do you think they're going round and round? And like, are there, do you think their adaptations are circular? They return to previous adaptations or they're constantly finding new ones, both of them? The thing you wanted to, uh, that you're talking about here was um, basically done by uh, Forrest Rohrer's work, which was also quite phenomenal. Uh, who's you know he studies uh, phage in the ocean and corals and has a mathematical background, and he described this thing called "kill the winner," which is another uh, I pro- thought is that you have a host that has a huge amount uh, that a presence, and so a virus is going to basically preferentially evolve to infect that host. And then when that host changes or goes away, then another host pops up. And then another part of the community then evolves and, and goes through that. Uh, in the case of an HIV patient, uh, you have a certain viral part of your viral population is dominant. You take highly active retroviral therapy that inhibits it. And then something that's rare becomes the dominant, the dominant uh, virus that's attacking. Uh, actually, the evolution that occurs in a single AIDS patient, viral evolution occurs in a single AIDS patient is more than the entire evolution history of them. So, and this is arts work out of uh, UBC. So um, it's a constant battle once again, right? But they're always present. There's always a member that's rare. It doesn't just vanish uh, unless 
you have something where you uh, eliminate it completely. And that's why, uh, you know, hep C has been, uh, it has, there's drugs that can help basically eradicate it because the virus can no longer replicate. And eventually the nucleic acid basically dissipates time because not able to replicate fast enough. RNA is so labile. So I think viruses are alive. You seem to as well. Um, You know, you call them parasites and nothing more, but why are some viruses lytic and some endogenized into the host and stay with that host? I mean, like people have supposedly many viral events where it's endogenized. Like how was that decision made? Uh, Well, it's, it's not really uh, a decision. Uh, And the ones you're talking about in human genome uh, and the common joke in virology is you're more virus than human is that if you have these things called HERVs, so uh, human endogenous retroviruses, and so these eventually lose their ability to package themselves and they become retrotransposons. And so if you buy that thing, then most of our genome are repeats from retrotransposons. And uh, basically, again, it's not, it's random. It's a virus just wants to make more of itself. And so it jumps around. And in our case, in eukaryotes, um, by having all that extra stuff there, if you have a point mutation in one of them, it doesn't cause a problem because it's most likely not coding or it's not regulatory. So it's almost like a DNA shield uh, for you as well by expanding the genome. I mean, I gave the case today about Crow-V uh, Crow and uh, Marvorous. Uh, so eventually, so the thing here is that it had a retroviral integrase. So this small little virus that parasitized a giant virus then integrated itself in the host chromosome. Over time, the giant virus was eliminated, but yet this marvelous was still there. It eventually lost its ability to capsulate it and then eventually evolved into a maverick transposon, right? So this is just one, one line of evidence that you know, virus, viruses acted as potentially a primitive immune system and may have contributed to actually the increase of the genome and the evolution of the eukaryotic. So I guess, could you say that viruses are major drivers of evolution for all creatures? I, I don't know about all creatures, but I would say a majority. We've never found a virus in ciliates, and that's because they have a non-canonical genetic code. But uh, anyone out there that wants to find a virus in ciliates, there's a cover article for you. Um, but they are major <laughs> drivers of evolution. They are major drivers of genes and nutrients, uh, especially uh, large biogeochemical cycles, uh, carbon, potentially nitrogen, uh, through the lysis. Uh, and eventually, uh, we believe as well, viruses might be involved in actually biopreservation, is that viruses then lyse cyanobacteria, they get entombed and calcify, and in forms of things called stromatolites. So things that, you know, we can say, you know, are the signposts of, of the origin of life. Uh, so viruses are just, they're the, you know, if you want to make a joke to Star Wars, they're the midichlorians of our world. They're unseen drivers uh, of our of evolution uh, and large biogeochemistry. It's amazing. But what about the, um, the structure of the virus itself? I mean, in all the diagrams I've seen, it's like this, you know, this capsid, this protein coat, and then there's a strand of coiled up, you know, RNA or DNA in there. Are there any substructures that people have been able to observe in the virus? So there are viruses that have no viral capsid. Um, these are like these are called like hypoviruses that are in in fungi. They're just infectious RNA. And if you go back to the origin of life, um, the RNA world really suggests and puts uh, a, a emphasis on this idea of catalytic RNAs or ribosomes that then were catalytic and then somehow were able to encode proteins that encoded themselves, and then eventually 
uh, series of evolution, we're able to associate with membranes and become eukaryotic, uh, become cells. And then eventually from cells, they split from our you know, bacteria and archaea split and uh, eukaryotes. Actually, the thought now is that we don't really have three domains of life. We have two domains, one of bacteria and one of chia. And that uh, eukaryotes like us were derived, our, uh, my friends out of the University of New South Wales and Joe Banfield's group, once again, have found these Loki archaeota, which kind of are half archaea and half eukaryotic cell. So these are not viruses, but viruses also came along. So there's, vi there's phage that I mentioned that infect methanogen, and they look like viruses that infect bacteria, and they're jumping into archaea. And, they hmm. and another thing I thought of is um, viruses, I mean, when they're a virion, they seem to have no locomotion. How, and, and they're so small, how could they ever find their targets over and over and over again? Well, some use strength and burst size. So example of that is something like a, a MS2 and E. coli. It makes thousands upon thousands of viral particles and it's able to, when it explodes the cell, it shoots out like a shotgun. And so it's able to kind of blast off in an aqueous solution. The other ones is some of them are just extremely stable, like the coronavirus. Uh, Hep A can be out in the environment for years, for example, because they have such a rigid capsid. So there's both strategies, you know, strength in numbers and strength in stability. So I guess so. Uh... That's enough with the just random motion, you think, for them to find their targets so, uh, you know, so repeatedly, so successfully? I think, you know, uh, you know, viruses, you know, when they're around a lot of other hosts, that's when, the, that's when they're going to, that's why they're talking about social distancing, right? Because <laughs> when you're, you know, we're basically, the only reason we know a lot of these viruses exist is because we are the Petri dish, which they grow in. And so, uh, and a lot of them can just stay dormant. A classic example of that is like herpes, you know, it just hides out. And you may have an infection, maybe like herpes simplex one, the cold sore virus. It might just, you get a, you get a, you get a small sore, but it's with you for life. And it just waits until your immune system isn't very good. And then it pops out again. So there's this idea between dormancy and number viruses. So some viruses with some numbers and they just able to propagate. The other ones are just, they hang out and wait for their opportunity. So, you know, a little bit about the current coronavirus issue. What are your thoughts projecting forward over the next year? Then the next five years, what do you think will happen? Well, I, I think that we have to take aggressive action against this virus. I think that it is starting um, to do that. I think staying at home, especially in vulnerable populations, uh, the data out of China and Italy has shown that people over the age of 70 are excessively vulnerable to the disease, with heart disease, with uh, respiratory illness, people that have gone through chemotherapy, uh, not very good immune systems. Uh, it's not clear about pregnant women yet, um, but in general, uh, self being at home and working remote, I think is extremely important uh, because we have to lower the curve. And then you've heard a lot about this, this idea of a curve. So it can either fo follow kind of the standard bell curve function where you have some and then it drops and kind of staggers and we, and we go from that way or it can have a huge spike and then drop. And then a lot of people will suffer and then drop drastically. But the main thing is to we don't overcome our medical system. Because if we have a huge increase of cases, our medical system is just not ready, unfortunately, to deal with them. And so uh, I wanted to mention this as well, is that, um, you know, we need to uh, not just wait for the next pandemic. We need to basically put funding, broad funding, into surveilling these things, sequencing unknown organisms. Uh, China has done a job where they've uh, started to ban the wild, the wild meat type of uh, things where multiple different uh, exotic animals aren't being next to 
people and then livestock. I think that's a great first step. But we need to not, you know, a lot of things is we, we wait until there's a tr- we need a treatment versus actually preventing these things from happening. And as well, I'm seeing a lot of misinformation. They actually spread faster <laughs> than this virus, uh, especially this one that's floating around the internet about how the swine origin is uh, upwards of 17% mortality rate in 09 with the H1N1 swine origin information. And that is completely false. And so people are going out and thinking that, my God, why, why are they doing this now? They didn't do this with swine origin. I mean, swine origin only had a mortality rate of 0.001% and only killed around five, about 500,000 people worldwide, which is still very high. But with this virus, we're looking at a repeat of 1918 if we do not stop the curve. Uh, 1918 was around 2.3%, and around 25 to 50 million people died. This virus is around 3.4% uh, currently. And so we have to basically keep our vulnerable populations in isolation. What's also interesting about this COVID-19 is that it does not uh, hurt the young. With 1918, it was people mainly that were healthy. And when it infected, it causes this thing called a cytokine storm, kind of an overreaction of the immune system. And basically, the patient would basically kind of not be able to breathe. And in that time, they died. Very, very. With COVID-19, it seems to be people with kind of weakened immune systems, and it's able to jump in, uh, cause an infection before the immune system can mount a defense. And, and by the time it does, uh, they have to be on respirator, respirators right away. Um, because of all the cell death that's going on in the lower lung, and people are dying, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm seeing that today that we're going to get some new stuff from, uh, from Roche, as well as uh, Thermo Fisher, but we have to test people, and if people if you, if will feel sick, they should stay home. And we should uh, really fight this misinformation. This isn't the flu. This isn't the seasonal flu. This is a pandemic on the, at the level of 1918. Don't panic. Uh, but we need to be vigilant in order to fight this. Do you think that it's going to be with us forever? Or That's a great do you think question. it's going to, uh, yeah, do you think it's going to morph into either more virulent or less virulent forms? And is it going to be where someone gets this the first time, if they survive, then the next time around won't be so bad? I mean, it's not there? clear. It's not clear. There is two forms of the virus, um, and one is more lethal than the other, but it has a, a lower level of, of spread. And it's not like flu where recombination, where you have multiple different viruses infecting like swine origin, you had four different viruses infecting a pig and then they can mix around and have viral sex basically and uh, make a new virus. We're not seeing that with this, uh, with SARS-CoV-2. The L type is more prevalent, around 70% is more prevalent. And then, uh, but the S type uh, is the ancestral strain. And uh, we're still, the data is coming out uh, which one is more lethal than the other, but most of the ones we see are the Elta. In the state of Washington, it is one strain, basically. In California, it's a mixture from multiple people coming in and going around. So we don't know the recombination will be a problem. We know that basically mutation by uh, making errors through the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, because these viruses never are DNA, they're only RNA, and they uh, this polymerase is really not very good, and so it makes lots of errors. And so when it does that, increases the population that it can kind of seed from. And we still don't know the mixing host with this other relatives, uh, SARS-CoV-1 or the original SARS. It went from uh, bats to civets and from civets to people, uh, as well in MERS, uh, both MERS and SARS-CoV-1 much higher 
uh, lethality um, as well with MERS. It went from bats to camels to people. Uh, and this virus, we're assuming, goes from bats, the horseshoe bat, to pangolins. It's kind of like an armored aardvark, and then jumped into, at least that's what the data is suggesting. Again, uh, the false information is that's out there in these conspiracy blogs is that this had made, uh, this came out of a lab. Uh, I think uh, there was one politician that even like, similar to that. That is completely wrong. Uh, nature invented this. Um, and there's no, you know, there's a paper that was retracted uh, off a of bioarchive that said that the GP120 spikes in HIV were present in the virus. That again is false. But we have to be vigilant not only <laughs> for this virus, but also the misinformation so people do not get infected and don't change their behavior. Uh, misinformation has brought us the anti vaxxers. Uh, measles, for example, was basically for the most part eradicated until people started not vaccinating their kids based on a, a false paper that's been retracted. Um, for example, the R R not the infect how many people virus can affect in the case of COVID nineteen is around two point three to three people. So if I have the virus, I cough in a room, I you know I touch I touch things, and it seems to be content spreading the virus. Uh, I can affect three people. If you look at measles, uh, I can affect twelve to eighteen, and we have a vaccine. So yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I believe that we uh, just recently they reported that they went from sequence and they're in a phase one trial in Seattle to where we'll have a vaccine for this uh, virus. I think that this thing by next year, we will have a vaccine. People will take it, hopefully, and it will go away. That is my hope. I think we are still on the quest of a universal flu vaccine, but this comes from research. We have to stop cutting research. We have to stop cutting, uh, you know, we have to not just, we have to prevent, not treat before it's too. And I think that, you know, we've- Very good. I think that's important. Um, and I think we have to invest broadly in science and math. And, and there are... We have I this, agree. Yeah, I agree. We have this immense talent of people that are PhDs, that are sitting at home, right? right? They, they're underemployed. They're not employed. But they would jump on this. And they, most of this PhDs dedicated their life to make everybody a little bit better. And they're working at, you know, they're working at tire places. They're working at, they're working at Walmart. But we have this immense workforce that could be working with us right now today. And we have to fund it. Uh, that's where another reason why I, I, I helped found R, RMS and Raw Molecular Systems, uh, soon to be Inc., is that I, I see a lot of my friends that just, they're so, they're so, you know, dis, almost disenfranchised. They paid a lot of money for their student. They did the work. And then there's nothing at the end. And so RMS is a place to where if you want to contribute, if you want to go after pathogen, you're interested in science. We have a place for you. We have a place that will. Okay, that's great. You know, and as well, I also wanted to uh, announce our uh, my new YouTube channel that will be out today. Your friendly neighborhood virologist. Uh, I am putting this out today to actually because I just I feel like that I could combat this misinformation. Well, good. Well, Rich, we're out of time. You answered the question I was going to ask you: is how can people get more info? So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, thank you uh, so much. And it's obvious our website is uh, www rawmoleculursystems.com for those that are interested in what we're doing. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at findinggeniuspodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.